Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and who are you exactly? <laughs> Tell me again. I am your amazing colleague, Susanna Greer, whom oh, yeah. you just, you know, love working with so much that occasionally you forget my name. Tell me more. Is that it? Did I eat my fruits and veggies? Well, so I was going to get to this eating habit thing. I was trying to think about how to ask you. So let me start with me. All right. So when I was growing up, we lived outside of Austin, Texas, pretty far from town. We had to drive like an hour to get to the grocery store. And like back in the 80s, fruits and veggies were seasonal, right? Um, right. There was none of this, you know, first of all, there weren't 25 different kinds of apples. Um, you can tell where I shop now. But also like, you know, apples were in the fall oranges in the winter, that sort of thing. And vegetables, man, growing up, it was mostly canned veggies for us. And yes. mom and dad were busy. So anyway, my dietary habits have changed for sure. Um, and I've discovered that vegetables are actually delicious. But what, what was it like for you growing up? Oh my gosh. Well, I my mom sometimes listens to this podcast. So let's hope she doesn't listen to this one because, oh, the canned vegetables that hit a chord. I, I just remember canned asparagus. I was just... Yeah. Oh, it was the worst. It was mushy and just oh, so bad. And now I think asparagus is amazing, but no thanks. Yeah, it's my to, favorite veggie, I think. Yeah. No thanks to honey, which is what we call my mom. So let's hope honey doesn't hear this one. Mom, if you're listening, your asparagus circa 2021 is amazing. Circa <laughs> 1980, not so good. Did y'all have canned fruit cocktail? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm from the South, Joe. We, everything comes from a can, and you mix it up with some, yeah. add some butter or whipped cream, and you're good. So we're talking diet, because you just had this really great conversation about yeah. dietary patterns and food combinations and insulin, all this good stuff as it relates to colorectal cancer. You spoke with Dr. Fred Tabung. He's assistant professor at Ohio State University in the College of Medicine and Comprehensive Cancer Center, nutritional epidemiologist, and what a cool, wide-ranging conversation you had with this brand new American Cancer Society grantee. Yeah, I, I could not wait to talk to Fred because he, oh my gosh, he, in a nutshell, studies why our diet so as Fred says, the foods and the liquids that we eat can change our risk for colorectal cancer. And our diets, of course, affect all kinds of things that have to do with colorectal cancer, like our metabolism and the kinds of bacteria that we have in our gut um, can impact the influence of our genes. But the, the thing that we talked about today, which was super cool because it's something we have control over, is Fred's interest in how the combinations of the foods we eat together can change our risk for colorectal cancer. And, and the reason this to me is so much fun is because not only is this something we have control over, it's not an all or nothing approach. So it's, it's thinking, Joe, like about if you were going to eat a, a, a steak, right? So we know steak is not something that we should eat three meals a day, seven days a week, but a steak every now and then is okay. But let's think about what we eat with the steak. So I, I'll, I'll give you the choice. Should you have steak and let's say macaroni and cheese and mashed potatoes, or would it be a better choice to have steak and a, a leafy green salad and then some non-honeyed 
asparagus, right? Some asparagus that was maybe cooked in the oven. What do you think, A or B? Well, are we talking about Israeli lab-grown steak with real animal cells? We are not. We are not. We are talking about steak from Piggly Wiggly or wherever you might shop. (laughs) Piggly Wiggly. I think we grew up in the same neighborhood. Um, Let's go with the leafy greens. Right. And so Fred's going to tell us why. So it's it's a cool conversation because he makes it so accessible and he tells us about this new grant from the ACS, which is making it possible for him to study a cohort. So a group of people, 700,000 people in their dietary patterns, which is just phenomenal. So let's listen and then we can uh, apologize to Honey about the asparagus. Love you, Honey. <laughs> hey, Fred, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing very well, Susanna. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, as you well know. So you're going to help us become a little more aware of the impact of diet on our risk for colorectal cancer. So if it sounds good to you, we'll get started. Absolutely. All right. So the first thing I want to do is just talk about your area of expertise, because this is not something that I think about all the time. And I I think our listeners will be in the same place. But you are what we would call a nutritional epidemiologist. So what what in the world does that mean? Help us understand. Uh, Sure. Nutritional epidemiology of cancer is the study of the nutritional causes of cancer. People consume foods and beverages every day. And for people who are not on a specific diet plan, it may not be obvious that our food consumption is defined by specific diet, uh, specific patterns that we call dietary patterns. Examples of dietary patterns may include a pattern that is high in animal-based products, one that includes a lot of seafood, or a pattern that is high in plant-based products, just to name a few examples. Specific types of dietary patterns have the potential to improve or maintain our health or to increase our risk of disease, including cancer risk. Okay, so we at the top of the podcast mentioned that it's Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and this is why I'm so excited to talk to you because one area of expertise that you have is in colorectal cancer. And the American Cancer Society, and the entire cancer community, we are working really hard on increasing colorectal cancer screenings so that we can impact early detection. But while I think these efforts are going really well, there are trends that are certainly concerning around colorectal cancer. So I'd love to hear your take on colorectal cancer diagnosis, mortality, Kind of where, where do you see as the state of the field right now? Absolutely. Cancers that start in the colon or in the rectum are collectively called colorectal cancer because they have many features in common. Um, globally, that is across uh, several countries, colorectal cancer is the third most commonly diagnosed cancer after female breast cancer and lung cancer. It is also the second leading cause of cancer-related death after lung cancer. Here in the United States, colorectal cancer is the second most common cause of cancer-related death. In 2020, it was estimated that close to 150,000 Americans will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer and about a third of them will die from the disease. Rates of newly diagnosed 
cases of colorectal cancer and death are slowly declining amongst individuals age 65 and older, while at the same time rates are increasing amongst individuals uh, that are younger than 65, especially those younger than 50 years old. And rates of newly diagnosed cases of colorectal cancer and death are higher amongst men than amongst women. And this sex disparity um, is also reflected across racial and ethnic categories, with highest uh, rates amongst African Americans and lowest rates amongst uh, uh, Asian Americans. All right. So you, and this is a huge field, you and others have hypothesized that our diet certainly can be involved in determining our risk for colorectal cancer. So maybe just help us understand why would that possibly be the case? Yeah, that is true. Um, as I mentioned, diet has a huge potential in determining our risk of developing colorectal cancer because diet affects our metabolism. Our habitual dietary patterns may either improve our metabolism or uh, to reduce the risk of colorectal cancer, or it may worsen our metabolism to increase colorectal cancer risk. Uh, our diets may also modify the composition of the bugs in our gut. And if the habitual dietary pattern is that which tilts the balance of bugs towards a greater amount of bad bugs than good bugs in our gut, then this may help to increase colorectal cancer risk. Um, also, some individuals may be more susceptible to developing colorectal cancer based on their genes. And research has shown that some dietary patterns may modify and reduce the risk of these genes, uh, reduce the influence of these genes, thereby reducing colorectal cancer risk. Okay, interesting. That's a, a huge scope of work, right? Because you mentioned that our diet can impact our metabolism, for better or for worse. Um, likewise, the diet can change the amount and kinds of bacteria in our gut, also for better or for worse. Um, and finally, diet can maybe modify the influence of our the impact of our genet own genetic makeup on our risk for colorectal cancer. So this is. This is a lot to, to think about. I'd, I'd really like to kind of, maybe we could dive in and help us understand, taking all of that into consideration, what, I guess, worries you the most? Or what is your biggest concern when you think about our diets and the influence of these choices that we make on uh, our risk for colorectal cancer? My biggest concern is that the dietary pattern of an average American is that which is more likely to increase than reduce the risk of developing colorectal cancer, and especially at younger ages. Um, that's my biggest concern. I can elaborate um, further, but really that is the biggest concern that I have. Okay, so that, that's a great place for us to start. So one of the things that you study when you think about patterns and dietary, so the influence of dietary patterns is you think a lot about insulin in your work. So tell us more. Tell me, help us to understand how insulin itself and the diets that the average American may be eating, why, why would that be important in the development of colorectal cancer? 
That is a great question uh, because my approach to studying the nutritional causes of cancer is based on identifying a combination of foods and beverages that um, that influences biological markers known to cause cancer. And one of these, uh, one of the biological markers is insulin. Insulin is a very useful chemical in our bodies that helps to lower our blood sugar levels and prevents us from developing diabetes. However, if levels of insulin are constantly high, our bodies may develop insulin resistance, where the body cells are not able to respond to insulin and use glucose for energy. Insulin resistance increases the risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes, which are strong risk factors for developing colorectal cancer. And our, our research has shown that dietary patterns that tend to increase insulin resistance also predispose to higher risk of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and colorectal cancer. Okay, so if insulin is useful, I think is, is what you said, it, it's absolutely going to be a, and you refer to it as a biological marker, so it, it's something that we're going to have in our bodies, right, all the time. We need it, right. but, need it. but too much of it, <laughs> like a lot of things, too much of it is not a great thing. And one of the things that you indicated is that if we are consuming foods and beverages that maybe over time really increase the levels of insulin that your body, you said, could develop resistance or insulin resistance and there will be some side effects to this that have some comorbidities with colorectal cancer, like type 2 diabetes and being obese. Um, so help me understand then, what do you mean by, what do you mean by diets where we're going to consume a lot of insulin? So I, I guess I feel like we all kind of know the basis of that, like we should eat a lot of vegetables and fruits, but you you think about the food choices that we make in these dietary patterns and the influence of insulin in a very different way. One of the things that I've read about your work is that you think about foods in combination. So maybe help us to understand some of these dietary patterns and then how it is different to think about foods in combination. Absolutely. It sure feels like we know what we should be eating, right? Yet the epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes continues to rise, it continues to increase, and we now see parallel rising rates of colorectal cancer, uh, paralleling um, uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes, uh, especially among younger people. Um, therefore, I decided to take a different approach to diet research. My approach of looking at food combinations that relate to uh, the cancer-causing biomarkers is quite unique and different than other approaches, and we have learned a lot about these unique food combinations. For example, a dietary pattern that emphasizes combining whole milk with meals, coffee for breakfast, maximizing green leafy vegetables such as spinach, and snacking on whole fruit or um, a meal that includes pizza with cooked tomato sauce and tomato-based salads with cheese and olive oil do not lead to insulin hypersecretion. It doesn't lead to um, uh, high levels of, uh, of 
insulin secreted in the body. We have also learned that uh, foods with a similar fat content can have different effects on biological markers of disease. For example, cheese and butter may have similar levels of saturated fat, but cheese associated with lower insulin secretion and blood lipids, with the opposite being observed for butter and margarine. Therefore, using oils such as olive oil instead of margarine and butter for fat in cooking or on bread would lead to optimal levels of, uh, of insulin secretion. These are very fine details. They look subtle but can make a huge difference on how our habitual dietary pattern affects uh, our health. I, I think not only can they make a huge difference, but they're also hugely accessible, right? It's as you were talking, I was thinking, well, that's, this isn't so terrible. I mean, Fred isn't saying, Susanna, you can't ever have pizza and you can't ever have cheese and crackers, but think about the, the ways in which you maybe prepare these foods. You mentioned using olive oil instead of butter um, or if you were to have a pizza, thinking thinking about the good things that are on that pizza, like um, using a tomato sauce that maybe is homemade instead of canned with lots of sugar in it. So that that seems to me a little more accessible than saying you can't ever have these things that are yummy and and make life kind of fun, right? To have some fun food choices. So I I'd love to hear kind of you mentioned that your approach is unique, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about your ACS-funded research. So can you share just a little bit? I think we all understand now what you're talking about when you say these dietary combinations, but what's so novel about what you're doing? Oh, um, I am very excited about this project, um, which aims to use our novel approach to diet research to study the relationship um, between high insulin promoting dietary patterns and chloretta cancer risk among different populations across the world, we will leverage an unprecedented population-based study in dietary pattern research comprising more than 700,000 men and women from 14 countries across four continents that are participating in the Consortium of Metabolomic Studies. This is a consortium of more than 70 uh, cohorts from around the world that have come together, uh, and it's being spearheaded by the National Cancer Institute here in the U.S. Our project is unprecedented because no previous dietary pattern uh, has been conducted on such a global scale. Our study population is representative globally and socioeconomically, thus providing um, a great opportunity to validate our approach to diet research on a global scale so that it can be applicable to populations across the globe. So what would, that's amazing, first of all, 700,000 people. So what, what would you hope to learn? Help us to understand, I guess, two questions. How, how might your research impact me as the average American thinking about my diet versus someone, let's say, that lives in Paris versus someone that lives in Uganda? Like, well, how might, you said it's a global study, so could this impact or have information to share 
for people who live in different places in the world and consume different foods. So maybe, you know, what, what would be kind of your greatest hope that may come out of this study? Um, my excitement for this project is, um, you know, several reasons. Um, we have several opportunities to use dietary pattern changes to impact colorectal cancer risk across the globe. We will explore how these dietary patterns influence human metabolism using metabolomics, which is a novel technology that has emerged to allow us to measure small chemicals in the blood and get a snapshot of human metabolism. We will explain how these metabolic profiles relate to colorectal cancer risk. And we will also explore whether genetics play a role in modifying the relationships between the dietary pattern and colorectal cancer risk. And in the long term, our study will help to refine existing dietary guidelines for preventing colorectal cancer and emphasizing certain combinations of foods for specific groups of people that may benefit the most from these dietary changes so that they may live longer, healthier lives. But just to make a point about the global nature of this uh, work is that dietary research is very difficult to translate across populations because food availability is naturally different across uh, different regions because of geography, because of different factors. So there will never be one time where you would have the same foods. But looking at single nutrients is easy uh, because um, nutrients are kind of universal. They, um, they, they, you know. So focusing on the foods and the food groups, we would, would like to um, really um, find out if the green leafy vegetables, for example, in Europe, would have the same effect um, on our metabolism as the green leafy vegetables in the U.S. or in Asia, for example. So this is very exciting and really hasn't been done before. Fred, I love the universality of your approach. I mean, that's just, it's incredible to think that you're exactly right, that I, I don't have the same opportunities to consume the same types of food as people all around the world, but the nutrients that we will absorb from our foods are quite similar, but maybe the impact is different. And I think this will be fantastic to help, as you said, really get a, a cool picture into human metabolism and how what we eat and the combinations that we eat these foods in impacts our risk for colorectal cancer and then really help us to make unique, it sounds like, recommendations for different people living in different places. Is that a reasonable goal? Absolutely. That is um, our goal. And it just seems like a starting point because there is a lot. This study is going to lay a strong foundation for good things to come. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I was trying to think about is there a take home message that I could that we you're just beginning this ACS funded research, but you have such a wealth of knowledge. I'd love to be able to share with our listeners, you know, what, what is Fred's like if you do nothing else? Kind of what's your bottom line recommendation? And I was thinking, you know, my mom when would always say, you know, Susanna, you want to fill your plate halfway up with vegetables. And we kind of all have these things that maybe, depending on where we grew up and the kind of dietary patterns our families had, we have like different rules that we know we should be following. But as you said, there's an obesity epidemic in this country. So 
based on your knowledge around the combinations of foods and how we eat them together, is there a message that you would share with us to say, hey, Americans, let's just, if you can just do this one thing, this is what, this is what Dr. Fong recommends. You mentioned filling your plate um, halfway with veggies, and I would, I wouldn't change that. Um, that is a good message. I would modify and improve it. For example, vegetables are a healthy food choice compared with meats. However, for lowering sustained high insulin levels, maximizing green leafy vegetables versus other vegetables is optimal. Also, um, a tomato-based salad, when consumed with a source of fat, such as avocado, nuts, olive oil, cheese, can have more influence lowering levels of insulin than simply consuming fresh tomatoes. So again, these are subtle messages that can have a huge effect on what we don't necessarily see, like lowering uh, sustained insulin uh, levels in our body and um, um, keeping us from gaining too much weight and developing diabetes and increasing our risk for um, for colorectal cancer and possibly other cancer. Well, the American Cancer Society is so excited to support your research. So we'll let you get back to, to all that hard work. But I did want to give you an opportunity just to speak to our listeners who are cancer patients and survivors and caregivers. Is there a message that you would like to share with our listeners and, um, of course, with our many donors that made your American Cancer Society grant a reality? First of all, I would like to thank them immensely for their kindness and generosity. I would like them to know with that without their generous donations, the ideas that we have for cancer prevention will remain ideas on paper with no opportunity to test the ideas and trans- transform them into um, uh, to improve cancer prevention. Um, so I would say um, they, they, they need to know that they're really um, helping to move uh, cancer research forward and transform these, I help to transform these ideas into real cancer prevention guidelines on the ground. Again, I would like to really thank them. Well, thank you, Brett. I think that's a really lovely way to end because you're exactly right. Words and ideas on papers, while they may be revolutionary, they don't do anything um, to improve cancer prevention until we can fund those applications and turn them into grants. So we're excited for you and your impact and look forward to hearing more. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure.